In those days, the crest was in service to the Shade, protectors of Hartvale. Joining the crest carries two requirements, swearing the oath of service and recording a name in the annals. I carry with me the books of annals going back to the founding, and in them are the names of all who have taken the oath, all who have served. From the beginning, the crest was a calling for some, and for others an escape. I hold no illusion, as analysts before me did not, that the names recorded in these books are true. It has become a time-honored tradition for those who join the crest to provide a false name. Even I was not always called Saga. This is especially true for our mages, whose names hold power and sway over them. I have read many texts on the nature of true names, though I do not fully understand how speaking a person's name grants power to the speaker. I do not need to understand, for I have seen how closely our mages guard their names. Even as I write this, I sit beside our lieutenant and chief sorceress. Her name is also written in these annals, Lethalia, but that is not her true name. I wonder, as I watch her lie in a sleepless slumber, if one were to know her true name and speak it, would she return to us? Welcome back for another episode of Errant Adventures. As always, I'm your Game Master and Solo Player, Steve Morrison. On this week's episode, Arid attempts to find Lafalia's spirit in the plains beyond the Sea of Stars. Find out what happens on episode 36, What's in a Name? Last time, Ben, Arid, and Orchid had returned to Veilwater and discovered the surviving members of the Crest who were there, including the Lieutenant and Master Sergeant Irongall, in the bowels of the Griffin and Moon, an inn close to the docks in Veilwater. They found them close to this strange artifact which had apparently detonated at some point previously and had killed everyone in the immediate vicinity and caused those a little bit further out in the town to fall unconscious. They found Iron Gull and two other members of the crest surrounding Lafalia, the lieutenant, who was unresponsive and seemingly magically absent from her body. Arid attempted to draw her back, but failed, though he did determine that they could move her body and the artifact itself relatively, and I stress relatively, safely. As they left the Griffin and Moon, they encountered a gentleman by the name of Reinhold Philophant, who was sent by the Shade to clean up their mess, a master illusionist and mage. They left Reinhold behind to clear up the mess and cover up their part in it. Once the survivors returned to Hartvale, Ben suggested they seek out the apothecary known as Mother Tumor and Iron Gull agreed, sending Ben, Arid, and Orgid off 
to see if this apothecary had any curatives that could be used to help Lafalia. Ben takes them to this apothecary shop where they find an old woman with shining hazel eyes who, after a brief conversation, agrees to help them. But it's going to come at a price, and that price is not coin or influence, but something far greater, far deeper. And Arid offers to pay the price. We ended last episode with Arid taking this vial and speaking into it his true name. There is silence in Mother Tumor's shop for a moment as Arid has just spoken his true name into the vial. Ben and Orchid kind of look at each other as if they're wondering if there's more to this. But before they have a chance to voice that question at all, Mother Tumor steps forward and takes the vial from Arid's hand. She whispers her own incantation around it, and then they see this strange silvery liquid forming inside of the vial. She stoppers it and then holds it up, studying it carefully. Then she smiles and says, It looks good, my dears. I think we have done well today. Arid nods and says, Thank you for your assistance, Mazatuma. She smiles back at him and says, And thank you, my dear, for your wonderful gift. I will keep it safe, don't you fret. And Arid, studying her, is not sure if what she says is true or not. But there is little he can do now, for he has spoken his true name in the hearing of another wielder of the talent. She could use that name against him, even now, though he doesn't see that there would be any benefit to that here in the moment. But what she has gained is an important piece of information, and if she were to pass that information on to someone else, it could be very dangerous to him. But I think Arid knew going into this agreement that that was going to be the price, and he paid it willingly. I think Ben, seeing this exchange between the two of them, says, Is that all then, or is there something more we need to do? Are we through paying for this service? Mother Tumor turns and winks at him and says, Why, yes, my dear. There is no more needed here. The payment is done, and my services have been rendered. Provide your friend with this curative, and they will be at least on the path. I cannot guarantee that they will return to their body, but if there is incentive for them to return, they will. They will. This name will be like a beacon for their consciousness and will guide them back to their body. Again, if there is the desire. I'm sure there's the desire, Ben says. And then he looks at Arid and says, Arid, do you need anything else or are we done here? Arid shakes his head and says, I need nothing more. We can go. All right. And they are going to take their leave of Mother Tumor. They are going to head back out onto the streets. And that is going to end the scene. So we can update our thread. Uh, One of the threads was find a curative for Lafalia. We have done that, so we can update that to provide Lafalia with the curative. 
So that is going to be the setup for our next scene, which is return to the nest and administer the cure. And I am going to bump up the chaos factor up to seven again, because I think that even though they got what they wanted out of that scene, I don't know that they were necessarily in control of that scene. So let's roll our d10 and compare it against our chaos factor of seven. I rolled a six, which is below the chaos factor and is going to be an interrupt scene. So let's see what we've got. We're going to roll on our event focus table. 20 NPC action. Okay. So we have nine NPCs currently listed. We've got Iron Gall and Lafalia. We've got the Vidala family. Merrick, who is Ben's brewer friend, Erdira the Shade. We have the Fell Swords, which are another mercenary company in the area. Gillen, who we know has joined the crest, although Ben doesn't know that yet. And then we've got the Kingsword and Reinhold Philophant. So I'm going to roll a d10 and I'll just re-roll on a 10. A 6. The Fell Sword. Interesting. Okay, so this is an interrupt scene that relates to the fell sword. Let's go ahead and roll on action and subject and see what the terms of what this interrupt scene is going to be. Seven, violate. And the subject, 12, violate opposition or a violation of the opposition. So the Fell Swords are a mercenary company. They have in the past been opposed to the Crest when they were hired by members of the Vidala family. But is it more than that? So is it just that the opposition is the Crest? Because we know that once the Vidala were sort of run out of town, the quarrel that the Fellswords and the Crest had ended. But did it really end? I guess we don't know. So there is something going on. The, the Fellsword are engaging in something. I think there are two basic options that are coming to mind, which is that they were left behind by the Vidala when the Vidala fled, and therefore that contract was broken. But maybe whoever is in the king's word who uh, other than Efren Fellhart who also knows about that alliance maybe they know that they could hire the fell sword again and that would create a natural sort of enmity between them and the crest or there is something that the fell sword are doing to strike back against either the vidala or the king's word because we don't actually know for sure that the vidala were the ones who directly hired the fell swords. It could have been Efren Fellhart and the King's Word who paid the bill, and the Vidala were just acting as leadership uh, for the fell sword. So why don't we ask the fate chart? Because they are going to violate some sort of opposition. I think the opposition here is going to be the crest, or it's going to be the King's Word. So let's go ahead and say, is the fell sword opposed to the crest? And if that is the case, I think it is unlikely. Uh, I, I think it's unlikely. So here we go. 92, which is actually an exceptional no. Okay. Okay. So if the crest are exceptionally not the opposition, to the fell swords, then I think that probably indicates to us that the fell swords are on the crest side. And I think to flesh that out, that means to me that someone has hired the fell sword to go against the king's word. It could be the shade or it could be Lord DeSoto. And I like the idea of it being Lord DeSoto because I like the imagery of these two powerful nobles in the city, each having their pet mercenary company that they are funding. 
So we've got the Red Fox, who is the patron of the Crest right now. And then we've got Lord DeSoto, who is the patron of the Fell Swords. Okay, so they are violating the opposition, meaning the King's Word. What does that mean, though? What, what, does, that, what does that tell us? Is, are they actually attacking the King's Word, or are they acting more subtly? Because, again, the Royal Dispatch Company is this rather large organization in Hartvale that is basically in control of the citywide news and propaganda, and they have contracts with the city government to provide information and provide a platform for the government to convey information to the populace. So I don't think that DeSoto would strike at them directly. So I think this is where we have to ask some questions as well of the fate chart. Because Efren Fellhart is missing currently. And we, I think, have decided that he is in league with the Vidala. Although we don't know to what extent yet. But how deep into the organization does this go? Is it just him using the resources? Or is it like a sickness and there are people inside the organization who are working directly for Efren Felhart and are trying to support these cultists of Vargash? Because I don't think it's the entire organization. I don't think the whole organization is somehow a front for this cult. I think it's Efren Felhart and he probably has lackeys who are working within the organization. But there are probably also people within the organization that don't know anything about cults or, you know, the political machinations of their leadership and are there to just create art and tell stories and are just sort of looped in with the rest. So I think the question is, is Felhart working alone within the Royal Dispatch Company? And I think it's pretty much impossible. So I'm going to start there. 72 is a no. No, he is not working alone. Is the entire organization devoted to this cult? I think that's also impossible. 17. Okay, that's barely a no, uh, but it is a no. So they are not devoted to the cult. That means that we're, we're ranging somewhere between two and a lot of people uh, are in on whatever Efren Felhart is planning. And again, I want to be clear here. I don't actually know if Felhart is a believer in the cult, in the dead god Vargosh. Potentially, he is just using them for some other aims of his own. And he has other people working for him. We know that there's Gimbal. So I think we should ask, you know, is it a small group of supporters inside? And I think that is likely. 23. Yes. Okay. So there is a small group of supporters within the Royal Dispatch Company who are working for Efren Felhart to support the cult of Vargosh, and we don't yet know why they're doing that. But I think we know that Lord DeSoto has hired these fell swords to suss out who these people are and try to cut them out of the Royal Dispatch Company. With that decided, now we need to have a scene. And this scene is going to involve the fell swords trying to figure some information out. So why don't we roll up a character to represent the fell swords? So as is often my want, I will roll a d6 and one to three will be female name and four to six will be male name. A six. So it will be a male name. And I am going to roll on a new table. And this comes from the 
great book of random tables by Matt Davids of Dice Geeks. Definitely highly recommend all of his books of random tables. So I'm going to roll a percentile dice. I got 19. Linford. I like Linford. I'm going to go over to Mazerath's and roll up a little bit of some descriptions here. One and a six. Brutish. So he is brutish. What is his physical detail? Six and five. He has tattoos. His clothing is two and four. Embroidered. Interesting. Personality. One and two. Brave. It's good for a mercenary. And mannerisms. Two and one. A drawl. Oh yeah, we'll go with drawl. All right, so this is Linford the Fellsword. And again, this is an interrupt scene. So what we are seeing is going on either before or after the events at the apothecary and before we jump into our next scene. I think it's getting on towards evening. And there is a small tavern that is on the border of the grasp. Linford, a sergeant in the Fellswords, is making his way through the city streets. And he is passing by a number of beggars on the street and is making his way towards this inn. And in fact, let's give this tavern a name. Four and five. Petrified. Four and five again. Mackerel. The Petrified Mackerel. So it's probably in the sort of border of the tame and the grass. And the petrified mackerel is this grimy, rundown tavern that is always loud and raucous. Linford is a large man. He has tattoos marking his arms and his neck. And he, as he walks, makes no mystery about the fact that if you cross him, he will beat you down. And so, no one crosses him as he makes his way to the petrified mackerel. As he walks in, again, it's getting on towards evening, so it's a fairly full house. There's the smell of salt from the sea in the air, and the smell of sweaty dock workers who have been working through the day. And Linford enters the tavern looking around for his contact. He sees the contact sitting in a corner and he makes his way there. His contact is not dissimilar from him, though maybe a few fewer tattoos and a little less gnarled but still a somewhat older man who is also well-built and he has curly hair and there's a flamboyant flair to his clothing. Linford sits down at the table where this man is also sitting and there's already a drink waiting for him. Linford picks it up, sniffs it, and says, 
Well, this rock guts just about what I needed. The other man grunts and takes a sip from his own cup. Linford says, Now I've been hearing that there are some shakeups going on in your company, and my commanding officer is very interested to hear all about it. So tell me, Morda, where has Efren Felhart gone? Who exactly is running the Royal Dispatch Company right now? And if you can't tell me that, what are we doing here? Mortar, I think, looks at him and then just shrugs and says, I don't know what to tell you. There have been strange things going on in the company. Felhart's been making some odd business decisions of late. But who might argue? I'm just, just a sergeant, just like you. Just sending my men here and there and making sure the work gets done. Right. Linford leans back. Getting that work done. All those pretty words gotta get lined up. Somebody's gotta say them. You're the man that picks who says them and when and why. So let me ask you again. Who's putting the words in your mouth, Morta? What's going on in there? Mortar says, I don't know, Lynn. That's why I asked to meet. Felhart's been gone for the last couple days. I think he's either in hiding or somebody got to him. And it bothers me that I don't know who. You see, I heard some rumors lately that some shade operatives have been sniffing around. Then all of a sudden, they weren't around anymore. But neither was Felhart. Now, you don't think that my company is opposed to the Shade, do you? That would be suicide, right? Linford looks at him and then looks around the crowded room, leans forward a little bit and says, Now, the things I've heard about the Shade certainly would indicate that that would be suicide. Besides, I hear that they have their own shiny mercenary company that they're working with. The Crest, Mortar says. Linford nods. At least that's what I've heard. Can't rightly speak to it myself. We've crossed them a few times, but... Well, I wouldn't say that we came out ahead, but we certainly didn't lose our heads, as I've heard some have. But if you're telling me you don't know what's going on inside your own organization, I've gotta say, I'm disappointed. I thought you were all about communication. Mortar smirks and says, Communication, yes. Communicating the things that we want others to know and hear. Not necessarily the truth. Listen, I don't know who to trust at the King's Word right now. And that concerns me, because I spent 20 years in the Hartvale Navy learning who I could trust and who I couldn't trust. I thought I had a pretty good read on everybody around me at the Kingsword, but with the way that things are going, I don't want to stick my neck out for somebody who's just going to turn me over and stab me in the back. That's why I sent the note to you. You and I have done a lot of things, Lynn. I need some help. I need someone to watch my back. And we're in a bit of a hiring phase right now. So I could bring on board a few people. If they're trusted people, if they're your people, then I can put them in place and if there is something going on in my organization, something that would put the city in danger, then maybe we can help stop it. Linford considers this for a moment and then says, Well, you know I want to help you. I really do. And so I'm gonna. I've got some people in mind, some folks that are good with words. I'll send them to you. And then you can keep me in the loop as well. Mortar nods. The two men go back to their drinks. And we pull out of the inn. Alright, so 
there is something going on at the Royal Dispatch Company, and there are people who don't like where things are headed. And it seems like the Felsword, at least, are getting some sort of in for that. We'll see if that comes up in the future uh, and in what way that might work out. In the meantime, Ben, Arid, and Orchid return to the crow's nest with this curative. They arrive and the nest is a bustle with Crest hurrying around, making preparations. As they enter, Ben looks around and says, I wonder what everyone's doing. Are we leaving the city? Arid kind of shrugs a little bit and says, It could be. Who knows what has been going on since we were away. We may have been forced out, or perhaps the captain thinks that that would be the best place for us to go. I will be sad to miss Hartwell, but I cannot say that I would not prefer to be on the move once again. Behind them, Orchid says, I don't know about you, but I'd rather not be running away from anything. I'd rather be running towards something. Preferably some cultists I can bury my axe into. Yes, well spoken, Orchid. That is what I would like as well. There have been too many questions, and we have been on the defensive for too long. These artifacts are dangerous, and if we do not sort them out, I fear that something even worse is going to happen to all of us. I worry about that as well, Ben says, especially since we have brought these artifacts together here in Hartvale. Do you think it was wise to bring that artifact from the Griffin and Moon into the city? I, what if it goes off again? Arid shakes his head and says, I sort of that. Unfortunately, unless we can separate this connection between the lieutenant and the artifact, I do not know that we can keep them apart. And we needed to get back to the city. I agree with you. It is dangerous. We should solve that problem as quickly as we can. And he holds up the curative. It's at that point that Iron Gall sees them. And he comes over and says, Finally, did you get something? Arid holds up the vial and nods. Iron Gull says, Excellent. The captain agreed that, at least for the moment, if we can solve this problem on our own without calling in the shade, all the better. It's not that we don't trust our patron, but we'd rather they not know that our head sorceress is incapacitated at the moment. If that information got out, it would be detrimental to our protection. The three of them nod. Ben, especially, I think, says, don't worry, Sergeant, we didn't get into the specifics of what was happening, just the general idea of what we needed. Good. All right, well then, let's get it done. We put the lieutenant in her laboratory. Follow me. And Iron Gull leads them through the crowded members of the crest back, back, towards the back rooms of the crow's nest. As they walk, Ben says, Sergeant, we couldn't help but notice the bustle there are a lot of crest gathered here. Is something happening? As they emerge into the hallway, Iron Gall nods and says, Yeah, something's happening, all right. We have a direction towards where those Vidala are. Finally, we can strike at them. Ben and the others share a look. And then Arid says, Where have they been hiding? Iron Gall says, Sounds like Davinar. At which point, 
Ben pales for a moment and says, Devina? We are going to Devina? Yeah, kid. Look, I know your feelings on the subject must be complicated, considering the fight that you had with them for several years. But this isn't about Davinar or Heartvale. This is about, well, cultists who are possibly trying to kill us all. Probably. Probably trying to kill us all. This is about the Crest completing its contracts. We have a contract now to put an end to their threat once and for all. We'll be leaving soon. The captain is working out the details with the drift. I see. All of us will be leaving? The whole company going to Davina? We're still working out the details, kid. Let's focus on the important thing, which is getting the lieutenant back. Yes, Sergeant. They enter the laboratory, and the orb, this fleshy orb, is still wrapped up in that cloak that Arid borrowed. It's sort of sitting in the middle of this table that contains various magical texts and instruments. Iron Gull sort of shrugs at it and says, I didn't really know where else to put it, so we just put it there. The lieutenant is laying on a cot, and Saga, the analyst, is sitting beside her, scratching letters into the great tome that contains some of the annals of the crest. She looks up when they enter and says... So, you have returned. Good. Iron Gull said you were going to find some sort of curative? Ered holds it up once more. Saga says, Excellent. I should like to hear the story of how you acquired it when we have a moment. And the mage nods again. He says, This will help her return to us, but I do not know that it will be an easy process. We must prepare for a challenging endeavor. Saga nods and stands and steps aside and says, Well, mage, we are at your disposal. What do you need from us? Candles. Many, many candles. And some wine would be nice. She stares at him for a moment, and he is smiling back his wide grin. Ben almost chuckles, but manages to hold in his humor. Then she says, Candles. Candles we can get. As for wine, perhaps we should all have a drink before we embark on this endeavor. They spend some time setting up the room. They, according to Arid's instructions, pull the cot into the center of the room. They place candles around them in what at first seems like a random pattern. But after a moment, Ben, looking at them, says, The constellations. Arid nods and says, Yes, these stars will also help to guide her home. They light the candles and... Even though I think Saga is not entirely sure if Arid is pulling her leg on the wine, wine appears. They fill several goblets, all of which they drink from. And then Arid takes his 
which he drank from. And he steps over. He says a few words into it and then opens the vial and pours it in. That silvery liquid mixes with the deep ruby red color of the wine. And carefully, gently, Arid holds up Lefalia's head and tips some of the wine and curative mixture into her mouth. She swallows it and makes no sign of resisting this ritual. When she has consumed a little bit of it, he lays her head back. And then he turns to the others and he says, Now, this is the hot pot. You see, her spirit is wandering the many worlds that are out there. And because of that, she has lost her way home. I think it is perhaps the artifact that is keeping her from returning home. It was the thing that cast her out into the outer worlds in the first place. This tonic will help guide her back, but one guide is not enough. Hence the candles. Two guides are good, but truly three are better. And he drinks from the cup again, sets it down, and then settles in beside her cot. He closes his eyes and he says, And now I must go and see if I can find our lieutenant. Do not disturb us, despite what you may see. And he begins to chant. I think it's time to harness the unspeakable power. So once again, this is going to be rolling 2d6 plus arcane, and Arid's arcane is 2. But I am going to give him a plus 1 because of this curative that they acquired. So that is going to give him 3 on this. 2d6 plus 3... That is an 8 on the dice, plus 3 is an 11. So when you try to harness the unspeakable power to achieve an aim, roll plus arcane. On a hit, you may change the world in some minor but tangible way. And I successfully got above a 10, so there is no hold against Arid. So he is able to succeed. So let's roll some action and subject here. 63. Ambush. 7. Ambush allies. Ambush allies. Arid closes his eyes and focuses on the flavor of the wine and the mixture of herbs that were in the curative. He focuses and focuses, and then in only a few heartbeats, he is floating. He's floating in a vast, waterless sea. A sea of stars. When he opens his eyes, it is calm, peaceful. He looks around, and just as suddenly, he goes from floating to standing on this vast sea of stars. He looks to his left and to his right, and it goes on forever as far as his eyes can see. 
There isn't anything close to him, but he focuses again on that flavor. And strangely, he feels an urge to walk. So he does. He walks. He walks across the top of this vast sea of stars. He doesn't really know what direction he's walking in. There there really aren't any cardinal directions here. But it doesn't matter. He just keeps walking because he knows that he is walking in the right direction. Time doesn't pass in the same way in this place. So he walks. And as he walks, he gets the sense that there is a light ahead. A light that he's walking towards, and he keeps walking. It's a long time. And it's only a moment, a heartbeat, until he's standing before this ring of amethysts. The sea of stars has risen up and filled this arch, making it look like a doorway. Arid pauses for a moment, looking at it and wondering. But yes, that sense, that pull, indicates that he should step through. So he does. He steps through into a world unlike any he has seen before. It's night. The deepest night. It is midnight. He is standing in a forest. And he can sense, he can hear a soft breeze rustling the trees around him. It is dark. And yet there is light shining from a full moon, and he looks up through the canopy of trees, and he sees it shining down on him. He sees them shining down on him. There are three. Three full moons shining down in this dark place. And still he feels the pull. So he walks. It's harder than on the Sea of Stars, because this place is physical. And though he knows that his body is still back in the crow's nest, back in Heartvale, the trees and the ground around him feel real. They feel physical. And so he trips over roots and branches. He gets snagged in thickets. But he walks on until he reaches a clearing. And in that clearing is a figure. That figure has their back turned to him. But when he emerges into this clearing, there's a change in the air. Like the figure is suddenly aware of his presence. And a voice says, What are you doing here? Ered says, I have come to find you, to bring you back. Bring me back? But why? 
where would you bring me back to? For I am home. I am home. And in the light of those three full moons, the figure turns. And for the first time, Arid sees Lephalia, who by some is called Balewind. And what he sees is not the human face of the woman who has been the chief sorceress of the crest for years upon years. No, what he sees are the sharp, angular features of a dark fae. Her pale skin, her long, tapered ears, the eyes that are pitch black and seem as though they could see into his soul. He stares, and she says, Ah, but I do know you. I sense the familiarity between us. I see it in your face as well. I hear it on the wind. The steps of your passage have shaken the roots of midnight. Who are you? He says, You have known me as Erid. But that is not your name. It is the name that I have been known by for many years. It is not the name that bore you here. No, it is not. But that is all right. What matters is that I found you, and I am going to bring you back now. Bring me back? Ah, yes, to the place where we know each other. Did you know me in this form? Arid shakes his head and says, No, when I know you, you appear as I do, a mortal. But this, this is the real midnight. It is a wonder. I did not know there were three moons. One for each. For midnight. For dusk. And for dawn. One for each of us. Ered hears what she's saying and knows some lore of the Fae. But that's not his purpose here. He's not here to learn about the Fae. He's here to bring Lephalia back. And so he steps forward and extends a hand and says, Please, Lephalia, return with me. We have need of your many skills in Hartwell. At that name, her head snaps up and she says, Hartvel, yes. Now I remember. There was a power, old and dark. I tried to contain it, to stop it. That you are here now tells me I failed. You were able to protect yourself and some of our company. That is something. And perhaps with my help, and perhaps others, we will be able to put these artifacts to rest. Please, return with me. 
She looks around and says, I have missed my home. But yes, I can sense that what you say is true and I am needed elsewhere. Elsewhere. But here. Very well, I will return. And she stands, though she has not yet taken his hand. Those opaque eyes stare into his. And she says, I am not known there. Not as this. And she points to her form. Arid shakes his head. She says, Let us keep it that way. A little secret between friends. Arid nods and says, I will tell no one. I swear it. Good, she says. I'm glad to hear that. And then she calls him by a name. His name. And he looks back at her and nods, understanding the implication. You have nothing to fear from me, Lieutenant. I only want to serve the crest. Lafalia nods and says, Very well. Let us return. She takes one last look around and says something in a language that Arid can only assume is Fae. And then she reaches out and takes his hand. It's like being pulled from deep beneath the water. There's a pressure around them that has built up, and they both feel it as the ground around them melts away, and they pass through that sea of stars once again. And then, like being pulled from deep underwater, Arid feels his lungs burning as he wants to breathe, as he wants to take a deep breath of sweet air. And then just as quickly, he opens his eyes and inhales a deep breath. He smells the smoke from the candles, the smell of this small laboratory in the crow's nest. He opens his eyes and sees the others sitting around, waiting, watching. His eyes turn to Lafalia on the cot. She's once again in her mortal form. Her eyes snap open and she meets his gaze. Then she sits up and surveys the room. Arid looks behind him and sees the captain standing there, leaning against the wall. The captain nods to Arid and then says, All right, if everybody's done napping now, let's see about ending a cult. Thanks for listening to Errant Adventures, and thank you so much to Sirenscape for the lovely ambient sounds and music throughout the episode. If you enjoyed the show, please tell anyone and everyone in your life about it. And if you want to support the show directly, leave me a review or buy me a coffee at coffee.com slash errantadventures. That's ko-fi.com slash errantadventures. 
If you want to interact with me, my handle on Instagram and Twitter is at ErrantSolopod, or you can email me at ErrantSolopod at gmail.com. I also post short fiction and campaign-related materials on my website, ErrantAdventuresPod.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.